On this edition of The Table of Content, we have Nancy Brown joining us, an author and expert on Frances Chesterton, wife to Gilbert Keith Chesterton. We'll talk with her about Frances Chesterton and her love of Advent, Christmas, and all things related to that. That's coming up next right here on The Table of Content. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Table of Content. I am your host, Albert Sines. So glad that you have chosen to join us. And we have the pleasure of being joined by Nancy Brown. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Albert. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm uh, I'm excited. This is sort of uh, a new sort of shift for us uh, in this program, trying to actually learn more about other great authors and writers. And as one of our co-workers recommended, you have been sent to the show as an expert on Frances Chesterton. Uh, but before we talk about Frances herself, I was wondering if you could give our audience a little bit of background into who you are and how you became an expert into Francis Chesterton. Sure. Well, my name is Nancy Brown, and I have loved Chesterton for about 20 years. And one of the things that um, interested me, I was homeschooling our children and um, wanted to introduce them to someone who had great thought, uh, was kind of a philosopher and something different. I also thought his writing was humorous. But as soon as I started reading about Chesterton, I wanted to know more about his wife because Chesterton is kind of an eccentric figure. Um, we hear stories about him not being able to tie his shoelaces or his tie and needing help getting dressed and all things like that. And I thought, who could his wife be? Right, she must right. be an extra- <laughs> she must be extraordinary. Um, so I immediately wanted to know more about his wife because I have a husband who is an artist and kind of that same when they describe Gilbert, I could kind of hear my husband in that and I thought, wow, I could probably learn from Francis how to be a good wife. So you're saying that the two of you could have swapped. You could have been in Francis's shoes and she could have been in your shoes and it would have been about the same. It's very possible, yes. (laughs) So I I just wanted to know more about her, and I began researching, and I found uh, very little on her life. Um, I really wanted a biography of her. I waited a few years for someone to write that book, and then when that just didn't happen, so I began to write it myself. Now, I take it in your research for that book is kind of how you became the expert on Francis Chesterton. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Uh, I took about eight to 10 years um, to do my research, and I was searching in the library archives of obscure libraries and well-known libraries around the world. Some of the things that she wrote are just letters, and they're in a collection of the person that she wrote the letters to. Some of the things that she wrote are in the British Library. That's, it sounds like it would be easy to do, but you have to get yourself to London, and then you have to uh, sign up for a library card and, and get into their uh, special collections department. They have very strict requirements of how many things you can read per day and that sort of thing. So It actually took me quite a bit of time to find all of the things that 
And I didn't even find everything I wanted because very little was written about her during her lifetime. But there were newspaper articles, and I found some books of poetry that she had written. And every piece of evidence just made me love her more and want to know more. And so I just got deeper and deeper until I could finally uh, put together a, a biography of her. Now you said that you actually went to London. How often did you have to travel there? I only went there once. I was trying to do as much research as I could, either online or by having those libraries make copies for me um, or send. I had even had the British Library make a CD-ROM of one whole folder of letters. So I had I had had some tastes of what they had at the British Library, but ultimately... I knew that I wanted to go there and actually have my hands touch letters that she wrote. I just wanted that really close connection. It's almost like, you know, if you have a saint and you want to touch one of their relics. Um, sure. It was like that. I wanted I wanted to be that close to her. I visited her parents' grave, I, and I knew when I was standing there that she had stood there. And she had mourned for her parents. And so I just wanted those personal connections. And I was able to get that by traveling to London and really getting close to her, as close as I could get. Well, I think you, you gave me a good segue to start getting into Francis's life. So let's, let's get right into it. You said that you visited her parents' grave where she, where she mourned, where she felt for the loss of her parents. If I understand correctly from my own research, she did have some levels of trauma as far as loss of life uh, when she was young. Is, is that correct? True. Yes. When she was 14, her father died of a sudden heart attack, and that affected her family. She, and she was the eldest in the family. So, of course, that event probably shaped her entire, you know, growing up years. Um, she, she also had siblings that, uh, I think there were actually a couple of siblings who had died at birth or died at the age of two. She had two sisters. I mean, those are tragic events in your life when you're growing up. But I think the death of her father at the age of 14 was probably the hardest thing. Um, we have some letters that exist between her and her father, and you can tell that they were very close. Uh, when he was away, she would write him letters, he would write back to her, and then suddenly he's gone. So this major figure in your life when you're 14, that's, a, that's an age, you know, for a girl, especially that's, you're just becoming aware of who you are, wondering, who am I? What will I be? Um, am I pretty? Am I not? All those things that you're wondering. And so, yeah, that, that's a tragic event in her life. And there were more tragedies as she got older because her sister died in a bicycling accident. And that happened when she was engaged to Gilbert. And then later on, about 10 years after they were married, her brother actually committed suicide. So she's got lots of tragedies in her life. And that's shaping who she is. So you say that it helps shape her life. Uh, of course, she's already into being engaged to Gilbert by the time some of these other tragedies happen. And I'm curious into potentially the link as far as, if, if there is, and you can correct me here, if there is any sort of link between the tragedies which she experienced 
And then, of course, the great celebration of Christmas, the celebration of the birth of our Lord, and any sort of peace or strength that she tried to sort of link between Christmas and the happiness that it brought to her and trying to overcome the tragedies in her life. Was there any sort of relation there? It's hard to tell with her earlier life, definitely with her life once she's married to Gilbert, um, because her plan was to get married and have a large family. And as we know, that didn't happen to her. She was infertile. And so I think one of the things that she really relates to in the Christmas story is the nativity So Mary holding this child in her arms, because I think that was something that she really longed for, was to hold a child of her own in her arms. But she could envision herself in Mary's place, kind of holding that Christ child. What would that be like? And then just the whole romance of the story, traveling through, you know, finding no place at the inn, the shepherds, the wise men. I mean, just every aspect of it to her, even the animals in in the stable, they're just all romantic. It's a romantic story to her, and she just loves every piece of it. She meditates on all of it. What was it like, and why did it happen this way, and what about that star in the sky, and and how how was it, what was it like to travel to Bethlehem? And so just the entire scene, I think she, she, possibly just like Gilbert, and this is probably something that they had in common and what drew them to each other was they really both had kind of a romantic view of life. And and in that, it's this simplicity, this childlike faith, this sense of wonder at the world. And so I think all of that brings her to this nativity scene where there's Mary and Joseph, who's the father, but not quite the father. God's the father, you know, and then there's these animals and the warmth of the stable and then the shepherds show up and all of that just is just fires her imagination as it does Gilbert because they both write incredible poetry about Christmas you know you gave me two points there and I'll I'll start with that last point you you said um, the incredible poetry that they write about Christmas and I've been trying to familiarize myself with how far it is to Bethlehem Mm-hmm. which seems to have sort of proliferated itself across hymnals and being sung now, not just a poem. So uh, apparently she was able to make quite an impact with uh, that poem, maybe one she had not quite anticipated. You're absolutely right, Albert. I, when I first started researching Francis, one of the people I talked to in England told me this fact, which just absolutely shocked me because I thought Gilbert was the giant uh, figure in England, this jur- journalist who was 300 pounds and and so famous in his time. This person in England told me that England knows Frances Chesterton more for her How Far Is It to Bethlehem, which is a, a Christmas song that they sing at Christmas time, that England knows her better than they knew Gilbert in this period of time because Gilbert had faded into the background and and England forgot about Gilbert. But That's because interesting. Of, yeah, but because of Francis's song, everyone knew her name. And that just absolutely shocked me to hear that. So, yeah. 
it's it's such a good point though because of sort of the angle she approaches it's sort of uh, approaching with caution and with such question and such awe, it's not just a full-out sort of, hey, here's here's the Christ child and let's all celebrate. It's such sort of, can, can we go in? What 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 do we have? Uh, we 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 didn't bring great gifts. All we brought were were our tears and and our our little smiles and little yep. tears are all we brought. It's such as a is sort of like let's let's sort of be on the outside wondering about this great this great gift of the Christ child and keeping ourselves at somewhat of arm's distance because of the magnificence. Yes, but also it also contains this sense of being a child. Mm-hmm. So your your little smiles and your little tears imply you are little. You're a little child and and that is another thing that Francis and Gilbert had in common of of keeping a sense of that childlike sense, you know, where where everything is new and everything's a wonder and and everything is miraculous. And of course, what what a what a great way to of course encounter Christ, to encounter Christ as a child, instead of sort of with our adult assumptions, our adult view on the world, but to come to Christ as just the awe-inspired, wonder-seeking child. Uh, so I, I think the poem puts us in a good position to come to Christ with the right mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We think about, you know, when our children, when we introduce a new sibling into our family, how much our our young ones just want to hold that new baby and they want to see our new baby smile and they want to interact with that child. And that's the sense that you get when you're reading How Far Is It to Bethlehem. Well, I could definitely agree with you there having, you know, having my small children myself. And when we've every time we've brought the new baby home, all that the all the siblings want to do is just try to be close and touch and kiss and be gentle and to take care of. There's that instant sense of like there is something amazing that has just come into our house. Exactly. So I want to go back to something else you had mentioned. You you talked about how Francis was sort of in awe with the whole sort of nativity story. And I'm interested in focusing maybe on the Holy Family themselves. And again, coming back to the fact that they were unable to have children themselves and how maybe the Holy Family played into their lives, into um, into how they they responded themselves to, okay, well, can we have a Holy Family? Can we do this ourselves some other way? Uh, how, how, how did they come to interpret that in their own lives? You're absolutely right, Albert. I think what happened is uh, because they had this tragedy of not being able to have children, at some point, about eight years into their marriage, when she had had three operations and the, finally the doctor said, no, this, I'm sorry, but this isn't going to happen and, and it's not going to be a biological child for you. I think a lot of women and, or families can become despondent and, and, and obviously we need to give them time to grapple with this tragedy and this grief. But I think what happened to Gilbert and Francis was that in that story, the nativity story in the Holy Family, they realized that they could parent, in a sense, other children that were not their own. So in other words, what we would call maybe today spiritual motherhood, spiritual fatherhood. So you have 
godchildren, you have nieces, you have nephews, the, the children of your neighbors and your friends. Now, rather than feeling jealous, which is a feeling that would naturally come to us if we had uh, infertility um, in our lives, we might feel jealous of those people who have those children and that we can't have those children. But instead, Gilbert and Francis embrace those children and they welcome them into their lives and they create a family that welcomes children, that loves children, that dotes, they absolutely doted on the children that came into their lives and they created fun, they fed them, they read stories to them. Gilbert recited poetry and created plays in his little toy theater. Gil, uh, Frances is sitting down and, and she's got finger puppets and she's making up little plays and she helps the little girls make fairy gardens out of the plants and flowers. And she just, they both embrace children and they give them as much attention as they can give them. And to me, the fact that they went from we can't have any children to the best godparents any child ever had. Oh, yeah, um, it, definitely. It mean, yeah, it means that they made a conscious decision and they really made a pact with each other. We're going to do this. We are going to we're going to be parents in a different way. And these aren't our own children, but we we can treat them really well. We can do our best. And I think that is the, that is the way that they saw themselves with their with their children and even Frances in some of her letters she'll she'll say my Peter or my Pamela these are her nieces and nephews but she feels like they're her own there's some some way they are her own i think to be able to especially for Frances i mean having experienced already such tragedy of the loss of life of siblings of parents and then to have such the great desire for her own family of children and then to finally have to accept the realization that she cannot have her children and then still to sort of come out of there and say, okay, there's still something great that I can do. I can accept other children into my home with love and with care and with joy, and that will be the path that I follow. What, what a great testament to just being able to sort of come through adversity. Right. But I find in her what a great example she is, because even even if we have our own children, we should still welcome other children. You know, we surely, should. Surely. Yeah. You know, we, so we can be spiritual parents and physical parents, biological parents, but we, we can expand our parenthood to all the children that we know. And, and help them and, and support them and love them and bring bring them joy in into our own families, whether they're our biological children or not. So I find that very, very inspiring in her and him, in both of them. Now, what about just general, general love of the Christmas season, the Advent season? I had uh, picked up that she actually had sort of a fascination with nativity scenes, with nativity sets. Uh, is that is that right? Yes. I'm not sure how it started, but they did travel a lot um, because of Gilbert's fame. He was invited uh, to speak, you know, all over um, Europe and, and to, nor to the north, to the south, to America. Um, and where, when they traveled, if she saw a particularly compelling nativity scene, 
she would get it because she eventually, she's from one nativity set, she, she had one nativity set in every room of the house, and they didn't go down after Christmas. They stayed up. So I thought I thought that was very interesting. And I think one of the things that drew her to that was just the different depictions of Mary and Joseph. So some were very valuable sets, some were very simple, hand-carved, hand-painted sets. And she just loved them all, that that they that they all could represent this scene, that they all could represent this family. Um, I think that to her, I, and I, I don't know exactly, but I'm assuming that that was part of the collection. And and also to remind her, every room you go in, oh, yes, you know, it's all about the incarnation. I mean, that just is this reminder that everything, you know, our whole lives revolve around the incarnation. And, and a nativity set is the perfect way to remind yourself of that. Oh, sure, especially if it's in every room of your house, you're, uh, you cannot escape it. So I can appreciate mm-hmm. their efforts to sort of make that the center of their house in every room. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know we, we have this beautiful nativity set that we bought some years back, and it has, the figurines are very, very ornate, and there's scripture verses in, inscribed on the statues. And, uh, you know, the, the, our children have, have wanted to sort of, sort of gaze upon it. But then just recently visiting a Christmas store, we, my wife saw a secondary nativity scene that's much smaller, much simpler, wooden figures, not as much detail. But she was drawn to it from, I think, the perspective that it would be a different way for our children to sort of see the nativity in a much sort of simpler fashion, but still be drawn into the incarnation, as you said. Well, and maybe that's that they're, it's safe for them to touch. Oh, I mean, yes, that too, right. There's, But there's something very incarnational even about that, you know, that you can touch these figures and, and play with them and put them in different positions and walk them over to where Jesus is and all of that. I mean, it's all, those are things we did when we were children, but we could still do them as adults. The other question I wanted to ask as far as sort of the her love of, of Christmas was she she did what seems to be kind of these Christmas cards for many years. And I was wondering if you, from your research, could expand upon kind of what the Christmas cards were and her, what kind of role they played in their lives. Sure. I think that they were, um, I, I think they were coming from a time where people created their own Christmas cards. Um, much more so than we did. But most people at the time would put something simple, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Frances decided at some point that she, because she was a poet, that she would write a Christmas poem that would be put into their Christmas card. And she had one of her friends draw a different drawing on the front of the picture, and then she would hand color those things. Uh, She she was inspired by every little aspect of the Christmas story. And you can read her Christmas poem. If you, I, I did put together a collection of her poems into a book called How Far Is It to Bethlehem? And one section of that is just every year's Christmas card. Every year it's a different poem, kind of focusing in on a different aspect of the scene. Sometimes it's the animals. Sometimes it's the wise men. Sometimes it's 
you know, the Holy Family. Sometimes it's the journey. Uh, so she's just meditating on all these different aspects. And each one of those poems is really poignant. It's, it's touching. It's meaningful. They're, they're, they're worthy of meditation, each one of them. And so, yeah, I think she really spent a lot of time meditating upon that particular, the, the Christmas scene, the Christmas story, much more so than Easter. We have uh, a few Easter poems, but by far most of her poetry is related to the Christmas story. Was there any sense that those who received her Christmas cards or her Christmas poetry were sort of enlightened or moved or touched in any greater way versus just a standard Christmas card that said Merry Christmas? Well, she definitely got letters afterwards saying, what a beautiful poem you wrote, because I've read those letters. And then quite a few of those people said, oh, you should publish this. And she did actually submit a few of those poems to the newspapers. And even to later on, when Gilbert had his own little newspaper called GK's Weekly, uh, she submitted a few of her poems to that, and they were published. And then she did put together a tiny little book of poetry uh, of her own, which she only published a few copies of and gave them to special friends who appreciated her poetry. So she she definitely had her fans and they loved her poem. And I would imagine if I were friends with Gilbert and Francis and I were receiving one of those Christmas cards, that every year I would look forward to what will Francis write this year? Because every year she writes a poem and we love it. And so I would I would feel anticipation every year for for Francis's new poem. So here's a here's a closing question then. If um, if you were going to try to summarize in your own words Francis's perspective on Christmas, uh, what would you say that she would tell people is the most important part of Christmas? Well, the one word that comes immediately to mind is humility. So Frances always wanted to stay in the background. She would envision herself as being um, in a supporting character. So she might be, uh, she, she might see herself as one of the shepherds, but not one of the ones that would speak. It, she wouldn't have a speaking part, um, but she would want to be there. She would want to be in the Christmas scene, but not in a major role. So she always pictured herself as something little, a little child or um, someone in the background. And I think the reason why is because she was very, very humble and there is a lot of humility. It takes humility to see things in a childlike way. It takes humility to be filled with wonder for something as an adult. You know, a lot of adults get this at attitude. They become cynical. They, they know the world. We know how it works. You know, there's nothing miraculous anymore. I understand everything. But Francis was able to keep that sense of humility that sense of wonder that said, this Christmas story remains a wonder to me year after year. I am never tired of it. I love thinking about it, praying about it. 
I think it's it's really her humility that helped her love Christmas as much as she did. Well, I think that humility is a great thought for all of us to have for Christmas from any number of points to reflect upon. So I mm -hmm. appreciate you uh, honing in on that from Francis's perspective. Mm -hmm. Nancy, I want to thank you for taking some time. It sounds like there's just so much more that we could talk about if we had hours and hours to talk, and we're just trying to talk about Christmas in a very brief way. But uh, perhaps we can find uh, another episode down the road to sort of look into other aspects of Frances's life and uh, her relationship to Gilbert and uh, just so much more, such great material here to dig through. So I hope maybe we can talk again. I would love to. Thank you, Albert. Nancy, you mentioned that you had a book that you published, uh, How Far It Is to Bethlehem, a collection of those poems from uh, Francis. Uh, how can they go about tracking that book down? I believe it's available on Chesterton.org in the store, as well as The Woman Who Was Chesterton, which is the biography of Francis Chesterton. They can both be found in the Chesterton Society web store at chesterton.org. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so you heard it. If you would like to learn more about the woman who was Chesterton or read How Far It Is to Bethlehem, both of those can be found at chesterton.org, uh, both uh, authored by Nancy Brown herself. Nancy, thanks so much for taking some time out to talk with me and to share a little bit into the life of Francis Chesterton with our listeners. You're welcome. So glad to be here. Thank you for listening and thank you for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to have you on board for another episode of The Table of Content. I hope that you will tune in again for the next episode. Until then, be good, stay safe, peace. Peace.